You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's open the word of prayer. Our gracious Father, it is a great gift that you have given to us, your word. And we believe and have confidence that when your word is rightly preached, then your voice is truly heard. We pray that that might be the case this morning and that you would grant to us open eyes and open hearts to your word and that you would send your spirit to be our teacher and our guide and help us to understand your word as we should. Incline our hearts to you and to your grace by your word and Incline our hearts to your word and create within us a hunger for truth and a love for righteousness uh, in and through your precious word. We pray your blessing upon this time in Christ's name. Amen. In John chapter 19, if you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 19. We're going to be reading together verses 1 through 16 of John 19. John 19, beginning of verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. From the vantage point of man, if you were on the streets observing all of these, or if you were in the crowd observing all of the events of this morning, it would appear as if everything hinged on what Pilate would do. It appeared as if everything was in Pilate's hands. Would Jesus live or would Jesus die? Would he be released or would he be crucified? It appeared to the Jews, it appeared to Pilate, it appeared to everybody watching, everybody in the crowd, that ultimately the fate of Jesus, whether he lived or died, would come down to what Pilate would do with him. And Pilate expresses the sentiment of probably everybody there in verse 10 when he said to Jesus, I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you. All of that humanly speaking, rested in the hands of Pilate. Or so he thought, and so the Jews thought, and so everybody there would have thought. 
But in reality, in verse 11, Jesus says, the authority to crucify him or to release him rested not with Pilate, but with God. Pilate is merely an actor acting out what uh, it was on the stage of, uh, of history predetermined by God. Pilate is doing that. He is responsible for that. But ultimately, that authority as to what would happen to Jesus of Nazareth did not rest in Pilate's hands. Though humanly speaking, that was in Pilate's authority. Divinely speaking, God could overrule that at any moment and make Pilate to do whatever he wanted Pilate to do. He could do that. Now, Pilate was making his choices and plowing ahead with this, and Pilate bore the guilt for that. But ultimately, it would be God who would determine how these events would unfold. And Jesus is where Jesus is in our narrative, precisely because he willed to be there. It was his desire to give his life for his sheep. And anybody who had been familiar with with uh, Jesus' predictions and his ministry for the last three years could have been able, if they were thinking clearly, to have predicted exactly how this day would end. Because Jesus, on multiple occasions, had shared with his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem. There he would be handed over to the hands of Gentiles, and they would treat him badly, and then they would crucify him, and then he would, on the third day, rise again. Jesus had predicted that. And Jesus had said in John chapter 10, Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This command I have received from the Father. He had complete sovereignty. Jesus, not Pilate, had complete sovereignty over when he would die, if he would die, and how he would die. He would determine all of that. He would give himself into the hands of sinners. He would be delivered there because this is what he willed. And so what we're seeing unfold here is this this interesting collision of human responsibility Pilate and the Jews were responsible and, at the same time, divine sovereignty. Because Christ could, at any minute, if he so willed, walk out of Pilate's praetorium a free man, if he so chose to do that. Pilate had no authority, ultimately, to kill him if Jesus did not will it to be so. So we're dropping in now at the between verse 11 and verse 12. We finished up verse 11 last week, and we're picking up the narrative. And I would just remind you of two key things from that previous section that we looked at, verses 6 through verse 11. First thing you need to remember is that Pilate was more afraid. Now, Pilate was terrified over the whole case from the beginning of this. He didn't want to deal with this at all. But now he is more afraid because when he heard that Jesus claimed to be divine, suddenly he was even more afraid than he was before. And the second thing to remember is that even while Pilate was judging Jesus, as as Jesus was standing before Pilate's judgment bar, and Pilate was issuing decrees of guilt or innocence, Jesus was at that very moment judging Pilate because he said to Pilate, you are guilty, but those who delivered me to you are more guilty than you are. And he was at that very moment determining issues of divine, uh, of human guilt and responsibility in everything that was unfolding before him. And he said that Caiaphas was more guilty and Annas was more guilty than Pilate was in this because Annas and Caiaphas did what they did from ill will and in the face of all of the light that they knew, all of the revelation they had been given, the knowledge that they had, the full testimony of Scripture, they knew exactly who Jesus claimed to be. They had seen the signs. They understood exactly His claims. And they understood exactly what they were doing. And yet they delivered Him over into the hands of Pilate. Pilate's hands were tied, as it were. His hand was being forced to do what he did, which makes him guilty to a degree, but not as guilty as the men who were masterminding this whole Um, this whole series of events. So now we pick it up in verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now as a result of this, as a result of what? 
as a result of hearing the Jews say that Jesus claimed that he was divine, and as a result of asking Jesus, where are you from, and Jesus giving no answer, and then Pilate said to them, you don't answer me, I have power to release you, I have power to crucify you, and Jesus said, you have no power unless the Father gives it to you from above, and you have guilt in this matter, and that decree of divine or of human responsibility and God's divine decree of guilt on Pilate, because of this, Pilate was terrified, and John says he made efforts to release Jesus. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning of chapter 18 all the way through to today, you know that this is not the first time that Pilate has tried to release Jesus, right? We've seen all the examples of this. He tried to get the Jews to deal with the issue themselves, didn't want to deal with it. They couldn't because by, by Roman law, they couldn't put anybody to death. And they were accusing Jesus of committing a capital crime. So that put it back into Pilate's, Pilate's lap, as it were. Uh, then Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, hoping that maybe Herod would deal with it, whisk him away, set him free, make some sort of a decision. What did Herod do? Sent him right back to Pilate. So there he is with him again. Then Pilate comes up with an idea. Maybe I can, maybe we can get a, a prisoner exchange. I'll offer him to the crowd, see if they would take him as the prisoner released. And that backfired on him. Pilate ended up getting the, the crowd ended up shouting, released for us Barabbas and not Jesus. So that didn't work. So he humiliated Jesus and drug him out and said, behold the man and hoping to elicit some sympathy from the crowd. And that didn't work. They just cried out for his blood. So this is not the first time that Pilate has endeavored to release Jesus. Luke says that everything that Pilate was doing was seeking to release Jesus. But when John says Pilate made efforts to release him, there's something odd about that. Because Pilate didn't have to make efforts to release Jesus. Pilate could have just done what? Release Jesus. Ultimately, from the human perspective, truly this power to crucify him or to release him was Pilate's decision. There was no authority over Pilate that he had to appeal to to get permission to release Jesus. There was no technicality of law that he had to figure out a way to, to work around. He didn't have to say, well, I have a pen and a phone. I can just do what I want here. He didn't, he didn't have any other body that he had to answer to. He had nothing around which he had to work in order to do it. He could have just done it. But John says he's making efforts to release them. What does that mean? That tells us something about the motive behind these efforts and what type of efforts these were. We would say it this way. Pilate was trying to release Jesus in a politically expedient way that was beneficial to himself. That's what he is trying to do. Pilate is trying to release Jesus in a calculated way that will save his reputation, allow him to do this without causing a riot or a disturbance. He was trying to find some loophole through which he could do this in a way that is expedient to him. So he's a politically calculating, politically maneuvering man who is doing this in a way that would benefit him. That's what he's trying to do. Because Pilate just could have just said, get out of here. I'm done with this. You guys go on with your day. I've had enough of this. You woke me up early this morning. This whole thing has been a fiasco. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Pilate could have said that, but he didn't. So he's trying to release Jesus in one of these ways that is expedient to him. The Jews knew this. The Jews knew that Pilate was a calculator. The Jews knew that Pilate was... Uh, trying to do this in a way that was for his benefit. And they knew that if he could find a way to save face and to do this, that he would do it. And they took advantage of that. That is why they say in verse 12, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now that's not just a veiled threat, that's a threat. And what are they threatening Pilate with? You have in your courtroom a man who claims to be a king. That was true. But that was as far as the truth went. They took that to mean that this man also endorsed not paying taxes to Caesar and that therefore this man was a threat to Roman interest. And if he was a threat to Roman interest, he was a threat to Caesar's interest. And although none of that was true, 
these Jews would most certainly make sure that when they reported to the emperor what Pilate did, if Pilate released Jesus, that they would they would cast this in such a way as to make it look as if Peter uh, Pilate let go a revolutionary insurrectionist. That's how they would that's how they would paint this whole picture of this scene. He makes himself out to be a king, and anybody who makes himself out to be a king is no friend of Caesar. That's the threat. If you release him, then you, Pilate, are no friend of Caesar. Now, Pilate knew two things for sure. Actually, three. He knew that the Jews were no friends of Caesar. Right? Now, there's a certain irony in the group of men that's bringing this accusation to Pilate and threatening Pilate. If you release him, we're going to accuse you to Caesar that you're really not looking out for Caesar's interests. As if there is anyone in all of Judea who for a moment believed there was a single Jew in that crowd who was in any way a friend to Caesar. He knew this is, this is feigned concern for Rome's interests. It is feigned allegiance to Rome. Pilate knew the same thing that everybody in that crowd knew, that if given the opportunity and the means, every Jew in that nation would have gladly run the entire Roman army out of Jerusalem, out of their land, at the point of a sword, and if they had their way, they would have overthrown the entire Roman Empire. That's how much they hated Rome. And for them to feign allegiance to Caesar, if you release him, you're no friend of Caesar, as if these Jews are friends of Caesar. They hated Caesar. They hated him. And everybody would have known that. So, Pilate knew that. Second, Pilate knew that, Pilate knew that Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor at the time, he had a reputation for being suspicious of all of his rulers, all of his, his staff, all of his subordinates. And, uh, this emperor, Tiberius, did not look fondly on any hint of insurrection or disloyalty to Rome. He had a reputation, not just for taking a strong stance against people who might be friendly to other nations, but he had a reputation for executing his subordinates for any hint of insubordination. And Pilate also knew that his governorship could not stand any kind of scrutiny if the Jews were to go to Rome and make an accusation against Pilate. Pilate knew the last thing he wanted was Tiberius Caesar looking into his conduct as a governor of Judea. Why? Because I didn't cover this earlier when you're talking about Pilate, but Pilate already had a history of executing his enemies without a trial, of killing his enemies for no reason sometimes. He had a history of setting up idols in the land of Israel, which was an offense to the Jews, and contrary to Roman uh, policies, and and then putting down violently and with with much, uh, over well, what would you call it, uh, overplaying his hand, putting down with much force any kind of an insurrection that might come in the land of Judea. Pilate did not want an inspection into his governorship for the same reason that most government officials do not want anybody looking into their conduct. Why? Because they are corrupt and it would not fare well for Pilate. So now the Jews have forced him into a corner. And here's the corner. As far as Pilate saw it, he had two options. He could either release Jesus and he would have a revolt, a riot on his hands possibly. The Jews would go to Rome and accuse him to Caesar. He could easily see himself being investigated by Caesar, drug up on charges before Rome for releasing an insurrectionist, and then executed. Or... Pilate could send an innocent man to his death. The way that this whole thing is cashed out, those are really Pilate's only two options. Release Jesus and you have a riot and Pilate could lose his life. Or he has an innocent man sent to his death and executed. Now what do you think that a politically calculating, callous, unprincipled, deeply unprincipled man is going to choose? He's going to choose to kill the innocent man. Rather than do what is right. And so that's what Pilate did. Verse 13. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out 
and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. The judgment seat is the word Bema, the Bema seat, which was the, the word used to describe the, the seat from which a Roman official would publicly uh, declare judgments or verdicts in, in cases. And they did this openly. The Romans had a system of, of making their declarations and their judgments very public. And so when they would announce a verdict, they would do so publicly. And in most Roman officials' houses or outside or near their houses was a large raised area where people would gather around and there was a sort of a mosaically marbled uh, top there that they called the pavement and they would sit the Bema seat up on top of that, the judgment seat, and there the Roman ruler would take his seat and announce to the crowd what the verdict is, what the verdict was. And so in the case of Jesus, this is what Pilate did. He realized he only had one option, and that was to issue the final verdict that Jesus was guilty and to have him crucified. And so Pilate prepared to do that. He went outside, he took his seat on the pavement, and John gives us two words for that. In the Greek, it was called the pavement, but the Hebrews referred to it as the gabapa, or the raised place. And gabapa doesn't mean the pavement, it just means a raised place. So the Greeks would call it the pavement, the Jews would call it the raised place, but it was the place where Roman officials would send down their, their justice, their judgment. Now, for those of us with, that have eyes to see, you and I can see that something far more profound than just a series of events is going on here. There, there is a historic twist of irony going on, and that is that this one who is kneeling before Pilate or standing before Pilate to hear his verdict is the one before whom Pilate would eventually bow the knee, right? Can you see that? That in an, an ironic twist of history, the one receiving Pilate's verdict will someday hear Pilate's verdict from his mouth, and it will be guilty. And Revelation 20 describes that time when the dead and the small, the dead, the great and the small, will be resurrected, and they will stand before him. And the books will be opened, and the book of life will be opened. And if anybody's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be cast into the lake of fire, which burns forever and ever. And that will be Pilate. There will come a day when Jesus sits on his throne, at his elevated place, and Pilate's name is read, and the books are opened, and Pilate will be judged according to the deeds that are written in that book. And Pilate's name will not be found written in the Lamb's book of life. And Pilate will be cast into eternal torment and eternal flame by the very one over whom he issued the verdict on this day. That is historical irony. Now look down at verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Now, there's something here that is kind of interesting. This is sort of John's... John does this. He's, he's, he's likely to do this throughout the book in giving us little notations of what day of the week it was or how many days from this it was or what time of the day it was. And John does it here as well. In verse 14, he says, Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. There's two, two notations there, a day notation and an hour notation. Let me take each one of them separately. The day notation, when, when Pilate says, or when John says, it was the day of the preparation for Passover, He's not, the day of, the phrase the day of preparation was used to describe the day prior to for preparing for a Sabbath. It was not used of, of just preparing for any day, particularly the Passover, but of preparing for the, the Sabbath. So they couldn't do any work on the Sabbath, so instead they would have the day prior, and on that day they would do all of the work necessary for the Sabbath meals and the collecting of food and the preparing of it so that they could rest on the Sabbath. So the day of preparation was used to refer to the day prior to the Sabbath. So when John says it was the day of preparation for the Passover, he doesn't mean Passover day, which would make this Thursday, not Friday. Sabbath was on Saturday. Uh, the day of preparation would have been before, or the, the Passover would have been before that on Friday. And if he is saying the day of preparation for the Passover day, that would put this on Thursday. But we celebrate the death of Christ on good Thursday. No, right, Friday, not Thursday, right? 
So John here is not saying that this day of preparation refers to the day before the Passover, but the day before the Sabbath of the Passover. That's the idea. It was the day of preparation, which is the word, the phrase that they would use for preparing for the Sabbath, not Passover, but it was the Sabbath of the Passover week. So this, again, is on Friday. Now, the real problem comes with the hour notation. When John says in verse 14, it was about the sixth hour. Now, there's a problem with this text, and there's a problem with that time notation. And you may not even realize that there's a problem there unless you read your notes in the MacArthur Study Bible until I raise the issue to you. And what is the issue? The issue comes when we read something from Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 15, and I'll read it to you. Mark chapter 15, verses 22 to 25. Then they brought him, Jesus, to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour. Now, Pilate puts, the Gospels put the events in disorder. The condemnation before Pilate. Then, verse 16, he handed him over to be crucified. And then he is crucified. That's the order of events. Mark puts the crucifixion at the third hour. John puts the condemnation before Pilate at the sixth hour. Now, I went to public school, but I think they got this right, that three comes before six. That the third hour comes before the sixth hour, right? So how is it that the condemnation before Pilate took place at the sixth hour, but the crucifixion, according to Mark, took place three hours earlier on the third hour? How do we deal with that? We can't just say as Christians, well, that's that's a genuine contradiction because one of them has it wrong. We can't just say that because that would mean that either Mark or John is not inspired and not inerrant. And as Christians, we believe the Scripture is inspired and that it is inerrant and that everything it teaches is true as it is spoken and taught in Scripture. Everything that Scripture says is true. And not only that, the Scripture cannot err. That's the infallibility part of doctrine, the doctrine of Scripture. So we can't just say, well, either Mark had it wrong or John had it wrong. We'll have to figure out when we get to heaven which one of them had it wrong. We can't do that. And let me make the, the dilemma even more complicated for you. There is no ancient manuscript, no textual variant, no scribal error somewhere in the ancient documents that we can point to to say, well, this was obviously copied wrong in some location, and so one of them got it wrong and it's been passed down to us. But if you go back to you know, P92 or some ancient document of John, he has a different notation there. There's no textual variant. Both of them say what they say. How do we deal with that contradiction? Is it really a contradiction? It certainly sounds like it, right? Now, if you are not any interested in thinking any more deeply than your average garden variety pagan atheist who likes to raise issues like this for the sake of showing why the Bible should not be trusted, then you might want to leave right now because I have presented with you a perfect example of a contradiction in Scripture. No takers? Nobody's leaving? Then I will assume that everybody wants to think a little bit more deeply than your average garden variety atheist. This is not an actual contradiction. There is an apparent contradiction here, but it's not actually a contradiction. There are a number of ways that we can reconcile this. Now, keep in mind that it's not like we just figured out that there's an issue here. Our generation. Christians for hundreds of years have noticed this and commented on it and done a lot of thinking about the text and how these two things could be true. Um, and I'm going to give to you three different ways that this can be reconciled. And normally at this point, you know how this would work. I would give you two kind of goofy ways that I don't think are really it. 
and follow that up by the one that I think is the legitimate option. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to, I'm going to switch it around. I'm going to spend some time giving to you what I think is the answer to this apparent contradiction. And then I'm going to give you two other very good ways of resolving this conflict that could also be true. But I'm going to give you what I think is the answer. And here's the answer. It comes down to how it is that ancient people reckoned time and recorded uh, the events in time. How it is that they reckoned or thought of time and how that is that they spoke of the timing of certain events. So here's what it boils down to. This is the answer to it. The ancient people, depending on what culture, but I'm talking about the Jews particularly and the Greeks, because if you travel to different parts of the world, sometimes there were some cultures that reckoned days from like sunset to sunset, some sun up to sun up, some noon to noon. Uh, some of them were all garbled up depending on where you were at. But Jews and Greeks, here's how they counted daylight hours. From the time that the sun came up, which was about approximately 6 o'clock in the morning, they would divide the daylight portion of the day into four three-hour blocks. So from about 6 in the morning to about 9 o'clock was the first three-hour chunk, and that 9 o'clock would have been the third hour of the day. From about 9 to about noon was the next one, and noon was the sixth hour. Three o'clock in the afternoon being the ninth hour, six o'clock that evening being the twelfth hour. So that's how they would divide it up. Now, if an event happened between, say, nine o'clock in the morning and noon, two people could look at that same event, and one of them would reckon that it came close to the third hour, another of them would reckon that it came closer to the sixth hour. And both men could describe the same event in that same point in time during the day as either the third hour or the sixth hour. Now you say, Jim, that sounds like it is anything but precise. And you are absolutely right. It is anything but precise. But listen, that is how ancient people reckoned time and spoke about time. It was not in any way precise like you and I think of precision in timekeeping. For us, in the 21st century or 22nd century, whatever, second, whatever century we're in right now, for us, we think of time in terms of minutes and seconds, don't we? I have a watch on my wrist, a phone normally in my pocket, and a timekeeping device on almost in almost every room of my house and on every monitor that I look like look at that I don't look like any monitors in every monitor that I look at that measures time in terms of seconds and minutes. In fact, the watch that is on my wrist right now is a wonderful watch because it gives me hour, minute, and second, and day of the week and year, and I can count the hours in either standard, what we use, or military time. I use standard time. But here's the weird thing about my watch. Between 5 o'clock in the morning and 5.04 in the morning, I can't tell what time it is on my watch, because guess what? My watch picks up a signal from Boulder, Colorado, from an atomic clock, or as one of our presidents would say, a nuclear clock. And that nuclear, nuclear, for those of you who want to be precise, the nuclear clock keeps track of time in our universe, universe to the millionth of a second. Now, my watch doesn't lose or gain more than one ten-thousandth of a second on any given day. And every morning at 5 a.m., it recalibrates itself by setting itself to that signal. And it doesn't matter where I go in the United States, as long as it knows what time zone I am in, my watch is the time of our universe to within one ten-thousandth of a second, plus or minus. So there's two ten-thousandths of a second of a window there, depending on what time of the day I'm at, where I can be anywhere in that. Now, that's precision, right? That's how we think of time. I think of time that way. I noticed this morning that my cell phone is 20 seconds behind my watch. My cell phone is not right. But I can judge everybody else's watch, everybody's cell phone, in terms of what the actual given time of the day is. What time did we start this service today? 10.45. Now some of you are wondering, is this a trick question? Was it actually 10.46? 
But listen, here's the point. If we started this, if we started this service at 10.55, we were 10 minutes late because of a technical glitch or because we couldn't get the sound to work or for I didn't show up or, or whatever reason, you would notice that 10 minutes, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would notice it. And you would be thinking to yourself, we're 10 minutes late. And if Jim doesn't cut the sermon 10 minutes short, I'm going to get out of here 10 minutes later and I'm going to barely beat the rush of the Baptist church who is usually 20 minutes behind me and I'm barely going to get to the restaurant in time to get a good table with all the people that I want to have lunch with. That 10 minutes could cost me and mess up my entire afternoon. That is how we think in our terms of time, right? Seconds and minutes. If you show up for work 10 minutes late every day, is your boss going to notice that? You bet he's going to notice that. He's going to say something about it, right? 10 minutes. If you arrange to go out to coffee with somebody and they're 10 minutes late, do you notice that 10 minutes? Yeah, you notice that 10 minutes. Every single one of those minutes cuts you like a knife as you sit there and fret over your phone or your watch, and you notice every one of those 10 minutes. People from the first century would look at you and say, you are crazy. And you might look at them and say, how is it that you can, you can describe the same event as either the third hour or the sixth hour? How is it that you can do that? And you know what they would say to you? What's a minute? And what is ten of them? How long is ten minutes? Now, my family would have loved to live in a first century culture. <laughs> now, I wouldn't have. It would have driven me bonkers. But my family would have loved to live in a first century culture. We can be somewhere within three hours, give or take, on either side of it, and we're not be late. And you could show up there three hours late by my reckoning, but you're right on time by their reckoning and your reckoning, and so it's all good. That's how they thought of time. So if this event happened at, say, 10.30 in the morning, 10.30, you can look at John and Mark and say, so what you're telling me is that this happened at 10.30. And you know what they would say? What's 10.30? What's a 10.30? We don't even know what a 10.30 is. Well, sort of the halfway mark between the third hour and the twelfth hour. You mark, you mark days in halfway marks between hours? If we had both John and Mark here, and we were to say to Mark, Mark, you say it happened at the third hour. John here says this happened at the sixth hour. Is he wrong? Mark would say, no, you can call it the sixth hour. And if you ask John, John, you say it happened at the sixth hour. Mark here says this happened at the third hour. Is Mark wrong? John would say, no, I can see how you call that third hour. So what does it tell us? It is somewhere between what? Nine in the morning? And noon. Notice that John says it was about the sixth hour. That is precise for first century. About the sixth hour. That tells us it's within a couple of hours of noon and within a couple of hours of 9 a.m. So let's put it at, let's split the difference and put it at 10.30. That is as precise as they would think. See, now the idea of minutes and seconds and keeping time, that was so foreign to their way of thinking that they, didn't, they don't even have categories for their reality for that. That was not even a fixture of their reality. What we plan our entire week around, minutes and seconds, and even individual hours, they didn't even have a way of thinking about those things. That wasn't even a fixture of their reality. And so it is perfectly natural and right for either one of these men to describe it as the ninth hour or the sixth hour. It's exactly what it was. It was the ninth, sixth hour. Right between the ninth hour and the sixth hour. Now you say, but that it sounds like God should have been more precise if God was inspiring Scripture, right? He could have been more precise. No, listen, if we just had John's record, we would think it was noon. If we just had Mark's record, we would think it was 9 a.m. But fortunately, we have John and Mark's record, and so we're able to discern what? It was somewhere in the middle between 9 and noon. And that is about as precise as you can possibly get. Now, God could have been more precise. He could have inspired John or Mark to say it happened at 10.32 and 15 seconds. And they might not have even understood that, but they didn't even think in those terms. 
So what we have is Scripture the way it was given. And when we treat Scripture honorably, we try to understand the meaning of Scripture as the authors intended it in the context in which it was written. And it was written in a context where they didn't think in terms of minutes or seconds or even hours, but chunks of daylight. Chunks of daylight. And they are both describing a chunk of daylight from two very different perspectives. John was familiar with Mark's Gospel. We have every evidence of that, that John knew of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we've seen that as we've gone through John. So... John would have known what Mark put down, and he would have knowingly put down something different. He would have knowingly done that. And John does this in order to show us that it is somewhere between 9 and noon. Does that make sense? Now, that's one possible way of resolving this. Let me give you quickly two others. The second suggestion has been to say that John, when he says it was about the sixth hour, that he is talking not in terms of the daylight chunks of hour like I just described to you, but that John was describing instead the number of hours from the beginning of the day of preparation. Now, most Jews, as we mentioned before, get up, got up very early in the morning. They went to bed early because it got dark early. And they didn't stay up. And so they would get up early in the morning, sometimes around 3 or 4, their day would begin. Now, if we say that the day of preparation for the Passover Sabbath began at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, then you have John possibly counting the beginning of that day from 3 a.m. rather than from the beginning of the sunrise, which is when they would normally start counting hours, in which case you have John saying it was about the sixth hour, which would have put it around what? From 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, which would accord with Mark's estimation of the time. Now, that's a possible way of understanding John's description here, but it's not the most natural reading of the Greek. So, though it's possible, I wouldn't go with that one. The second alternate explanation to the one I gave you was to realize that in the Greek text, they didn't have punctuation, they didn't have capital letters and, and demarcations between uh, individual sentences. So, when Mark says it was the third hour when Jesus was crucified. It is possible to take Mark's text and rather than follow the English translation with the period in the beginning of a sentence to understand Mark's three hours, it was the third hour, as referring to when they cast lots for his garments would have placed it earlier in the morning as opposed to a reference to when he was crucified. And that when he was crucified, the sign above his head read, which is the next verse. So in other words, you would take Mark's description of the time and you would actually punctuate it differently to give you an entirely new sense. That is a completely legitimate take on the text as well. Now, I have just offered to you three possible resolutions for this apparent contradiction. So next time that an atheist comes to you and says, Scripture is filled with contradictions, and you say to them, give me one, they say, well, it's filled with them. They're all over the place. There's hundreds of them, thousands of them, millions of them. And you say, give me one. They say, well, I don't know. I can't name just one. I can name hundreds, but I can't name just one. I mean, offer them this one. Because this isn't really a contradiction, is it? It's not. It's a perfect example of how God, through multiple authors, gives us um, two independent accounts of the same event from two different perspectives on the time of the day on which that event occurred. Okay, enough about that. As fascinating as I'm sure that was to all of you. Chapter 19, verse 13. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, or for the Sabbath of the Passover week, as we've seen. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now, this is Pilate presenting Jesus to the Jews. Behold your king. Now, what's interesting is earlier he had said, behold what? Behold the man. Now, he's changed that. Behold your king. So, Pilate, while Jesus was inside, where Pilate had asked him, where are you from? Pilate went outside and began to argue with the Jews and reason with them, trying to get them to see his reason for wanting to release Jesus. And uh, they wouldn't take any of that. Pilate saw that this was fruitless. And so, he took his seat in the judgment seat and he had Jesus brought out to him. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. Now, I think that there's, there's two things going on here. Pilate is referring to Jesus as your king as a way of mocking the Jews and sort of throwing this up in their face. 
That was the accusation that they had brought against Jesus to Pilate. Pilate didn't believe that was true. He didn't believe, he didn't believe Jesus was a king in any sense of the word that Pilate was familiar with. And though that was the accusation that they brought, he is now using that accusation against them. Behold your king. And this is Pilate's way of mocking the Jews. It's his way of saying, this truly is your king. This is the type of king you Jews would have. A beaten, bloodied, bruised, humiliated Jew who is under the foot of a Roman government, who could be executed by the Roman government at a whim. This is truly a Jewish king. Behold, your king. And he presents Jesus to him in that, in them in that way. And it is intended again to mock the Jews and to sort of throw that into their face. And then they said in verse 15, uh, oh no, they yeah, said to the Jews, behold your king, verse 15, so they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. This is the, at least the second time that they have, the crowd has gone into this chanting of crucify, away with him, crucify him. We saw it in verse 6 when he said, behold the man, they called for his crucifixion, crucify, crucify. And now he says, behold the king, your king. And what do they say? Away with him, crucify. This is the second time now, at least, that the Jews, Jewish crowd has broken into this chant of calling for his blood. And Pilate now recognizes, of course, that whether he refers to him as the man or he refers to him as the king, there was absolutely no way of satisfying or satiating the bloodlust of this crowd. They wanted him dead, and they weren't going to stop until they had him dead. And Pilate recognized that. And they cry out with him, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And this rejection of the Jews, by the way, this rejection of the Jews is something that was predicted in Scripture. And I want you to see even their statement here in verse 15 as a fulfillment of prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 7, it describes the Messiah as the despised one and the one abhorred by the nation. Isaiah chapter 53 says this, verses 2 and 3, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And now listen, and like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. The rejection by the Jewish people of their king, the Lord Jesus Christ, was in fact the fulfillment of exactly what Isaiah said in Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 53. That he would be despised by the nation and that he would be rejected by the people. And indeed Jesus was. And so in verse 15, Pilate then said, Shall I crucify your king? And Pilate there is again reminding them, This is your king. Now, it is almost as if Pilate is throwing in their face. You want to, you want to say he claims to be your king? Fine. This is the accusation you bring. We all know how baseless it is, but that's the way that I refer to him. He's your king. And now Pilate is pushing it back in their face. You deal with it. This is your king. This is the type of king you want. This is the type of king you deserve. This is the type of king you have. A king that I'm about to kill. And so he asked him, what shall I do? Shall I crucify your king? And, and Pilate is goading them. It is almost as if he wants them to say it with their own words. Crucify our king. Wouldn't that have satisfied Pilate to hear them say that? Crucify our king. If Pilate is going to do this dirty deed and his hand is going to be forced, he's going to do it in style. He is going to remind them all the way up to the very end that he has his boot on their nation and on their neck and he has at his discretion the ability to crucify one of their own, even somebody who claims to be their king. It is almost as if Pilate is saying, shall I crucify your king? That's what you want? You want me to crucify your king? Just keep in mind, Jews. I have the power to crucify your kings. So you want to bring me another one after this? And I'll crucify him too. This is Pilate's way of just throwing it right back into their lap. And that is exactly what they asked for. And they said in verse 15, the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now, now that statement 
if we had not read it in inspired Scripture, is not a sentence that you would have ever imagined would come from the lips of any Jew ever under any circumstances. We have no king but Caesar. This is the level of deception and duplicity and hypocrisy that is almost unimaginable. And it is not just a repudiation of Jesus as in now take him, take him away. This is this one sentence itself. There is not a, a Jew in that crowd who would have believed for a moment that there was even an ounce of sincerity in this. But they are feigning their allegiance to Caesar in order to turn over to Pilate an innocent man whom they desired to kill. We have no king but Caesar. That sentence, that sentence is a sentence of blasphemy. Because God and God only was the king of the nation of Israel. In fact, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 149, verse 2, says, Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. And who is their king? Their maker. God was the king of the nation of Israel. Isaiah 33, 22, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. This was the Old Testament expectation that God and God alone was their king. In the book of Judges, when Gideon, they asked Gideon to become their king, Gideon refused and said, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Who was the rightful king of the nation of Israel? God was. God was. Now for these Jews to say, we have no king but Caesar, was not for them just to reject Jesus. They are in that statement committing an act of blasphemy by saying we reject even that God is our king. Our ultimate king is Caesar. So given the choice between the meek and mild, lowly and loving son of David, the good shepherd, and the bloodthirsty tyrant Tiberius Caesar, who claimed to be God and demanded that his citizens worship him as such, given the choice between those two men, what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. Not even God is our king. These same men who had earlier that evening or earlier that morning accused Jesus of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of Man are now committing blasphemy by saying we have no king but Caesar. That is a blasphemous statement. It was a repudiation of God's rightful place over the nation. Second, it is also a repudiation of their messianic hope because the Jews had been taught to believe, and they did believe, that the Son of David, the greater Son of David, the Lord Jesus, not the Lord Jesus Christ, they didn't reject that he was the Son of David, but that the greater Son of David, who was the Messiah and the rightful King of Israel, would come to the nation, he would set up and establish a kingdom, and he would rule over the nations. That was their messianic hope. And they looked forward to that because that's what the Old Testament prophets predicted. And we look forward to that because, guess what? That's what the Old Testament prophets predicted. And that will happen. And so when they say, we have no king but Caesar, they are saying the king which God has provided, and that hope, and the son of David, and all that pertains to that messianic hope of a kingdom, we gladly jettison that and reject that for the sake of Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. These same Jews who were supposed to teach the people to look forward to the Son of David and the Messianic hope, they are now here repudiating their Messianic hope. This statement is also a sad description of their true condition. A sad description of their real true condition. Because they have turned their king over to Pilate and because they have rejected him from being king, it is this statement, we have no king with Caesar, is probably the most truthful thing those Jews have said all day. Because that really was the condition, wasn't it? Having turned over Jesus to Pilate to be crucified, who are they left with? Caesar. They don't have any other king but Caesar. There is no plan B. They have no other options. They have gladly exchanged the one whom God has given to them for an earthly tyrant. And so they have no king but Caesar. J.C. Ryle says this, while other nations all over the world cling tenaciously to their own religion and honor those whom they call gods and will not forsake them, Israel revolted from God, cast off his authority, and claimed Caesar as their king. Justly, therefore, they were delivered into Caesar's hands and endured the heaviest calamities. End quote. This is exactly what the Jews got. When they swore their allegiance to Caesar here and rejected God and their messianic hope and the king that God gave them, they were left with no king but Caesar, having given themselves over into Caesar's hands. Guess what Caesar did to them? 
They came in and destroyed the Jews in 70 AD. They got what they wanted. Be careful what you ask for. And fourth, this statement is also demonstrates their rank hypocrisy. Now, this is stunning that these same Jews who earlier had tried to trip Jesus up by getting Jesus to say one thing even slightly positive about Rome so that they could turn the people against Jesus. They asked him questions like in Matthew 22, verse 17. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a full tax to Caesar or not? And what were they trying to get Jesus to say? Yes, you should pay your taxes to Caesar. Because they knew that that's what Jesus would say. You should pay your taxes to Caesar. But if they got Jesus to say, you should pay your taxes to Caesar, that would make Jesus out to be pro-Caesar. And if they could get, make Jesus out to be pro-Caesar, they could turn the entire nation against him. And now these same duplicitous, hypocritic, calculating Jews come in and say, uh, he tells us not to pay taxes to Caesar, which was a false accusation. And these same Jews who earlier had tried to trip Jesus up to say something positive about Caesar, now say what? We have no king but Caesar. What hypocrites. In John chapter 8, remember when they said to Jesus, we, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone, even though they had spent their entire history in slavery. We have never been enslaved to anyone other than the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Greeks, and the Persians. Other than them, we have never been enslaved to anyone. How dare you say we shall know the truth and the truth shall make us free? Now, these very same people who earlier had said, we've never been enslaved to anyone, we are our own people, are now saying what? We have no king but Caesar. What hypocrisy and what rank blasphemy. But that's what they stooped to in order to crucify an innocent man. That's exactly what they set out to do, and now they have forced Pilate's hand. And so in verse 16, it says, So he handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate handed over Jesus to the will of the Jews, to the desires of the Jews to be crucified. The Romans did it, but he is handing them over to them, the Jews, in the sense that he is handing him over into the hands of the Romans to fulfill the will of the Jews, which was to crucify their Messiah. And so now, friends, the question that confronts each and every one of us is the same question that confronted Pilate and the crowd that day. And it is this. What will you do with Jesus who is called Christ? Will you, like Pilate, think that you are in a position to judge Him even while He is judging you? Will you, like Pilate, think that you are in a position to look down and scorn upon Him while at this very moment you stand under the gaze of His almighty and holy wrath and His righteous judgment because you will not repent and put your place, place your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you, like the Jews, say in the words of Luke 19, a parable that Jesus told, we will not have this man to rule over us? Is that your thinking? Because if it is, I have news for you, everybody is ruled by somebody. The person who thinks that they will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, lest they give up their own sovereignty and their own freedom and their own decision, and they want to be their own man, thinking that they're free, would rather take that than the yoke of Christ. I have news for you. You are a slave to Satan and a slave to your sin and a slave to your lusts. And if you spend your life living as a slave to Satan, you will spend your eternity suffering next to him. And if you live your life living as a slave to your sin, you will spend your eternity being punished for it. If you live your life serving your lusts, you will spend your eternity being consumed by them. What will you do with Jesus who is called Christ? Will you gladly own him? Or will you exchange him as the Jews did for a modern day Caesar? Freedom and blessing and forgiveness and eternal joy and delight belongs to the ones who will gladly bow the knee and say, not just Jesus is Lord, but Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my King. This King was crucified for us and bore our shame so that we would never have to be ashamed in God's presence. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious Father, You are merciful to us and kind beyond description and beyond all measure. We thank You that You have loved us in, in Jesus Christ and for His sake and that you have given us life and freedom and joy and forgiveness for his sake. 
Thank you for such a gracious king who was crucified on behalf of his subjects. And it is the joy and delight of your people, us, to gladly own him as not only Lord, but also as our king. Thank you for this reminder of the depth of human depravity and what comes and awaits for those who who fail to bow the knee to Christ. And may you be glorified by drawing sinners to yourself, granting them repentance and faith to believe, so that they may behold the glory of Christ and be transformed into his image and given eternal life. Thank you for this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.